Welcome to the Small Machine Talks, a conversation about literature and art, about duende and queerness and coping and tea, border blur and misfits and community, secret places, ragged edges. Angel House Press. I'm your host, Amanda Earl. Welcome to the Small Machine Talks. I'm Amanda Earl, and this, would you believe, is episode 78, and this is our, the beginning of our sixth season. So uh, I'm very pleased to have the poet Lisa Richter to, to speak to you this morning. Hi, Lisa. Hi, how's it going? Pretty good. It's not morning right here, but it's afternoon. <laughs> Yeah, close enough. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for coming on the show, and especially for for starting us off for the for the uh, sixth season. I can't believe we've done uh, five years already of of the small machine talks. It's, how does time go by? I don't even understand it. What is time anymore? Even, but that's amazing. Congratulations on that. Thanks. Thanks. Yeah, I, I think the secret is just to keep going and, and, and just do something that's not too complicated so it just doesn't burn you out. But that's, that's sort of my my life advice. Yeah, I'm still working on that. Yeah, for sure. That's it. So, yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about uh, your poetry collection, Nautilus and Bone, and we'll we probably touch on other subjects as well. But let's start with this question. I used to read people's bios out, but I decided that instead of doing that, I would I would make make the make the uh, the guest do more work. So instead of reading your bio, I'm just going to ask you, um, what would you like listeners to know about you? Um, well, I'm uh... So this is my third collection, um, sorry, but my second full-length collection. I also published a chapbook in 2010. Mm-hmm. My first full-length collection was called Closer to Where We Began and was published by Tightrope Books in 2017. And Nautilus and Bone is my second full-length collection of poetry, which was published by Frontenac House in October 2020. Um, and it won the National Jewish Book Award for Poetry this uh, year in 2021, which was an incredible and shocking and thrilling honor to receive. Um, but I've actually been writing and publishing poetry for a very long time, and it's something that is very special to me and that I'm very passionate about. Um, I was born and raised in Toronto, but I've also lived in Montreal and in Vancouver and in Tel Aviv, Israel. So all these different places and chapters of my life have found their way into my poems in different ways. Thanks. And, and congratulations on, on the award, too. That's that's fantastic. I, I read that, but I, you know, I'm, now I'm saying acting like I'm surprised, but no, I'm not <laughs> And I'm also not surprised yeah. because the book is such an incredibly good book. Like I, I recently recommended on one of, one of my little Twitter lists, you know, books I, I I think people should read, and it's one of those. So so with that in mind, would you like to talk to talk, tell our listeners about Nautilus and Bone? Yeah, sure. Um, Nautilus and Bone revolves around the life and work of a Yiddish poet named Anna Margolin, who lived from 1887 to 1953. She was born in Russia and immigrated to New York as a young woman at the age of 18. Um, Her birth name was Rosa Lebensboim. And that's important because that does come up in the book. 
as one of the central themes in the collection of names and identity, the ones that are given to us or assigned to us at birth and the ones that come to us later in life or that we choose for ourselves. Um, and Anna Margolin is the um, muse and the lyric voice that appears in the collection. So it, um, I call it an auto slash biography in poems because it some ways is a very personal book for me. Many of the chapters in Anna Margolin's life mirror um, incidents and events in mine. And it felt when I was writing it that I was not only writing through her, but directly addressing her as me, as Lisa. So the book interweaves our lives and narratives in a certain way. That's great. And of course, that was one of the questions further down, but you know, right. we yeah, that's fine. Uh, the other the, uh, one thing I find really great, um, um, my um, poetry book, Kiki, is about Kiki of Montparnasse, who was born yes. Ernestine Prin, and she, she lived from 1901 to 1953. So they would have been contemporaries. And I like to imagine mm -hmm. that the two of them would have gotten along well. So, um, oh, yes, both wild, rebellious, yeah. sensual women in Paris yes. in the early 1900s. I wish I could just go back in time and okay. hang out with them there. Yeah, that's <laughs> it. Well, it, it's so funny sometimes when you're trying to do research on these things we'll get into research though and you're really hoping you can find that one thing that proves something you know like I was with Kiki I was always trying to find um I couldn't find any connection between her and Gertrude Stein even though Ray mm. was often at Gertrude Stein's salons right there was no mention anywhere even in the the autobiography of Alice B. Toklas there was no mention of Kiki anywhere I'm thinking why why would there be no mention like surely yeah. they know each other but I mean mm -hmm. Kiki, Kiki wouldn't have liked to sit with the wives with Alice and the other she would have wanted to sit with uh, you know all the men and and you know absolutely with anyway so I like to imagine those meetings and I I kind of encountered similar issues when I was researching Anna Margolin's life in different particular times and places that she inhabited too. So mm -hmm. I ended up fabricating certain connections too that she may or may not have ever had. But in my mind, they just became real. So I was just like, okay, this is this is happening. Right, <laughs> Whether yeah. you like it or not. Yeah. That's so uh, I'll start out. I, I, I really love the cover art and the, it, it was done. It's a gorgeous Nautilus. It was created by Oksana Volkova. Can you talk about how it came about and what was your role, if any, in, in choosing the work? It's so lovely. Oh, my God. I love this painting so much. Oksana Volkova's work is incredible. So when I first started um, thinking about cover art, I started thinking about the Nautilus shell as a symbol, but also as a very beautiful graphic image. And um, initially the artist or illustrator that my publisher had chosen to do the covers of all the books in the Frontenac Quartet, which is the annual poetry series they put out every year. Um, the style of their art didn't really resonate with me. I mean, she, she seemed to be like a perfect choice in for the other covers, for the other collections that were coming out, but it didn't really like scream Anna Margolin to me. And so I went on this wild search for art across the internet, um, images of Nautilus shells. 
And this was one of the images that I found on Etsy of all places where Oksana Volkova and a lot of other artists are um, exhibiting and selling their paintings. And it grabbed me initially because of the striking contrast between the black background and the fire of the yeah. red and the orange, right? Like there was just something very raw and very visceral about it and and simultaneously very tactile. Like there's a lot of texture in the image. And that really spoke to me on a very physical level. But my publisher and I went back and forth on this for a long time because, I mean, that wasn't the image that I finally said, yes, there was it. You know, it wasn't like an instantaneous, oh, my God, OK, that has to be the cover. Like I kind of saw it and then I forgot about it. And then I found this other artist. And, and yeah, it took a lot of discussion back and forth. And then finally, Neil, my publisher was like, that first one that you sent me, that's the one. And I'm like, really? And he's like, yeah, yeah, that's <laughs> it. And he was so confident about it that I just went, okay, let's do it. Let's, let's see how it turns out. Because he is a brilliant book designer with lots and lots of experience. And one of the things that drew me to Frontenac initially as a publisher was the beautiful quality of their books. Um, and the cover art especially has always really stood out. And that's how the cover was born. That's great. And, you know, I was thinking as you were talking about the spiral in the Nautilus and how um, spiral, like a lot of a lot of narrative can be a uh, line. But I think okay. uh, there's a great book which is on my shelf and I can't read the last. It's Meander, Spiral, Explode. Anyway, it's all about narrative. It's a really good book. Oh, I love that book. Yeah. Like, someone recommended that to me last year and it made perfect <laughs> sense. Like, I'm, I'm not a linear thinker. And no. so... You know, like I'm not a fiction writer, but I feel like a biography or a memoir is as much a work of fiction in many ways yeah. as a novel, right? And so when you're thinking of plot or you're thinking of structure, it doesn't make sense to, for me anyway to think just purely in terms of chronology because that's not the way my mind works. That's it's not, not life works. Memory I works. <laughs> it's not the way life works, exactly. Yeah. Like, um, you know, we, uh, we have our, and I, th I think especially when you're doing something that has to do with someone's life, um, with, with memories and things like that, it's just the, the sort of straightforward, well, this happened first and that happened first. And what I was going to say is that's what the, the book felt like. There, there were lots of, first of all, the parallels between you and mm -hmm. uh, in, in many ways and Anna Margolin, but also the, the sort of just just the way that's the way life is to me it spirals like it's a it's mm -hmm. spiral, like a ripple as well like it has the effect too so I have that circle a spiral uh, in my mind as I'm as a, so I thought that was good for many reasons and also oh, that's really cool yeah and you you have uh, I guess I guess the uh, one of the epigraphs uh, that is from the chambered nautilus so you were mm -hmm. right there with, with those sort of things as well so mm -hmm. We just talked about this um, when you talked about the book initially. You talked about the relationship, the, the fact that it was subtitled an auto slash biography in poems, which I like. Uh, and and so um, you talked a little bit about it, um, why you chose to subtitle the book this way. But uh, what are some of the things about her that particularly resonated for 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 you in your life? What are some of the aspects? Oh my God, Amanda, I don't even know where to begin. <laughs> Oh my goodness. So maybe I should just 
um, start by saying that I first heard Anna Margolin's poetry several years ago when I was reading the work of Adrian Rich and I was getting more and more into Adrian Rich's poetry, which I've always loved um, mm -hmm. in preparation for reading at the Dead Poets Night at the Art Bar Poetry mm -hmm. Series. And a little did I know that Adrian Rich also translated a lot of Yiddish women's poetry, not only Anna Margolin's, but some of her contemporaries. And then when I was at the Sage Hill Poetry Colloquium in spring of 2019 with George Elliot Clark. He assigned us to do what he called a homophonic or homolinguistic right. translation, um, which is taking a poem written in another language and translating it into English, which has already been translated into English, and then retranslating it using your own diction or your own vernacular. And immediately Anna Margolin's work popped into my head. So I went online and I started researching her life and I found so many fascinating things about her, about her childhood in Russia, how she was the product of divorced parents, which was right. obviously not common at all um, <laughs> at that time in, in, in history. Um, she had three marriages and many lovers. She traveled extensively. She emigrated at one point with her first husband to what was then the mandate of Palestine, which was in um, British control. Actually, no, I think it was still under Turkish control when she was there and she ended up having a son in um, Palestine and left him and her husband there and moved yeah. back to um, well she, first she went back to Poland and then to America and though I've never been in a situation like that and I don't have children I did spend some time in Israel myself and when I was in a relationship there in my early 20s and um, I made the decision to leave and to come back to Canada. It was at a very turbulent time. I mean, when is it turbulent in the Middle East, right? Like it, it kind of always is. It's just kind of the thing that you kind of have to accept if you choose to live there. Um, but it wasn't something that I could live with in the end. And so I made a very difficult decision and uh, ultimately the right decision um, to come back but there were just so many points in Anna Margolin's life where I felt like she came to certain crossroads and she had to decide what was the right what was right for her ultimately and she was viciously authentic and I would say <laughs> yeah authentic <laughs> relentlessly and ruthlessly individual um she also interestingly enough wrote many queer poems that yeah. described either characters or narrators who were female or female identified who had feelings of longing and desire for uh, other women. And that's something that's a part of my identity as well, being somewhere on the bi or pansexual spectrum. Right. And that's not something I've ever really spoken about publicly until quite recently. But when I read those poems of Venomar Golan's and then read more criticism of her work and explored that facet of her identity um, as a Jewish woman um, and as a secular Jewish woman, that spoke to me very, very deeply as well. 
Yeah, that, that, and it's amazing that you were able to uncover a lot of that too, I guess, as well. Mm. I mean, it's not um, sort of the uh, fluid sexuality, fluid gender. It's, it's not like from that era. I mean, there what it existed for sure, but, um, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily that people wrote about it easily. So uh, mm. everything was so encoded. Yeah. Right? Um, and yet, not only Anna Margolin, but there were other Yiddish women writers who were at the forefront of that. And they were marginalized, not only within um, Yiddish language and literature, which was obviously super patriarchal, but as uh, immigrants, as newcomers, they were marginalized within the society. They were in at large. And I wonder if it's somehow because of that, I wonder like if it was because they were already so on the edges that they just kind of gave zero fucks and they were like, well, I'm just going to write about sex. I'm just going to write about kink. I'm just going to write about gender fluidity, even though I'm living in this um, super puritanical society and just do whatever I want. I don't know. Maybe that's just a theory. But other people have put forward that, um, you know, women in that era and in that particular class, working class women, um, push the boundaries and push the envelopes in so many ways. And imagine encountering if you were if you were um, a, a queer uh, Jewish woman at the time who was closeted and the pressures of that society, and then coming upon one of those poems and how imagine you, that right? Like that would be fantastic. I'm I'm wondering too. Like um, I sort of I don't remember exactly like how the how her because uh, I mean first um, like she she used a pseudonym right so mm-hmm. for. Her, so like, um, do you think that decision was part of, um, part of that? Do you have any idea why she, I can't remember if you said, you may have said something. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, no, that's a really good question. I really thought about it from that um, angle before, but I will say that Anna Margolin was not the first pseudonym that she chose. No. Um, she actually was a journalist as well for one of the many daily Yiddish newspapers in New York during World War One, And she wrote under various names. Um, Hava Gross was one of them. I can't remember all the others. Um, and she published all kinds of articles and even short stories. She was kind of put in the like women's issues box, obviously um, that right. still happens today, but was even more prevalent back in those days. And I do wonder if her choice to adopt a pseudonym was to create some distance between mm-hmm. her and those aspects of her of her life. I don't think she was ever really private about her identity. I don't think Rosa was ever totally separate from Anna. I mean, her birth name and her her, her pseudonym. Um, and the thing is, I mean, there there's no actual reported history that I've been able to find of her ever having relationships with women. So, you know, there's always that danger, right? Of like reading biographical subject matter into a poem. Right. And that's something I was conscious of and very self-conscious of Mm -hmm. while I was writing this book. Like how much am I going to draw from her life and make assumptions about 
from poetry based on those details and vice versa. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you too before, because there's a good um, follow through in the next question, but um, I was wondering if you've ever, or have you ever thought of using pseudonyms yourself? Or um, you know, that never occurred to me, but I will say this, that my mother, who is an, um, a multidisciplinary artist and a writer herself, used the name Jenny Margolin as a pseudonym when I was a little girl and she was working on a novel. Um, and Margolin, I think, actually, that's how my mom pronounces it. Um, yeah. I later found out it's Margolin. And she's like, oh, okay, I've been pronouncing it wrong all these years. <laughs> um, but there's an interesting story behind that. My great-grandfather was born Samuel Margolin, in Russia um, in the turn of the 19th century. And then when he emigrated to Canada, when he came to Montreal in the early 1900s, he changed his last name from Margolin to Lipitsky because I guess that was more Russian sounding and less Jewish sounding. Okay. And for anti, yeah, because of anti-Semitism, um, a lot of Jews actually changed their surnames. Mm -hmm. um, and, so my mom um, had this name in her mind and that name resonated throughout my childhood. But I've always really been attached to my own name. Um, Richter means judge in German, yeah. which is something I've often wrestled with. Do I really want to be a judge? What does it mean to be a judge anyway? Does it mean I'm judgmental? Um, I don't know. But since my dad passed away a few years ago, family history and ties to my ancestry have taken on a new importance, um, especially because I'm not a mother myself. My sister won't be having children either. So we think of my family, my sister and I and, and my family, we think of descendants in a different way, right? Like a lot of people who have kids think about, you know, their DNA carrying forward into the future. For right. me, I that's not the, the way that I see the world, right? Like that's not my, in my consciousness. Um, but names for me have a lot of weight and a lot of power and a lot of meaning behind them. Mm. Yeah, that that's really interesting too. The connection. What did, when your when your mother uh, found out about? I assume you you told her about Anna Margolin and and mm -hmm. uh, the work you were doing. Was she was she interested uh, like by her like her using that the connection between that? Did she? You know, she didn't really bring that up until huh? I asked her about it. And then she was like, oh, yeah, I remember that name. I mean, I think she'd kind of forgotten about it because it had been so long since she'd even looked at that work in progress. And she, I mean, she's, she's working on other projects at the moment, but under her, uh, her real name. And uh, I kind of lost my turn of thought. I forgot where I was, I was going with all that now. With um, your mother and the connection between. Yeah. Oh, so that's what I wanted to say was that, um, so I discovered early in my research for this book for Nautilus and Bone that 
Mar- Anna Margolin was a pseudonym, right? And Rosa Lebensboim or Ro- Lebensbaum. I don't know which was the actual correct version with right. her, her birth name. And that became really interesting for me as well, because mm-hmm. the name Lebensboim translates as tree of life. Yeah, tree of life, which is wow. <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> if I had a name like that, I don't think I'd ever change it. <laughs> um, but um, she had her reasons, obviously. Yeah, no, that, that, I mean, there's so, just so much there when you go into yeah. detail too. So when you, um, so obviously you, you did a suspan- substantial amount of research um, mm-hmm. for this book. Um, you've got notes in the preface, which, which um, as well as the whole book itself. Um, how long did it take you to do the research? And do you have any stories about discoveries along the way that changed the course of the book that were particularly exciting for you? So, yeah, I started doing this research um 2019 it all kind of came about very quickly um it was a very sort of condensed very intense period of research where i read every article and every review i could get my hands on of anna mergel and um like i actually reached out to her translator shirley kumov who's still alive 90 years old living here in Toronto and I had the chance what to a coincidence. right yeah wow. yeah That's like a sign that you were meant to make the book right because it, yeah yeah it uh, was it was totally like that it was crazy I couldn't believe that a she was still alive and b that she lived in Toronto um and I found a way to get in touch and I I met with her in person and we had Mm -hmm. some incredible conversations about Anna Golan's life and her legacy and her poetry which were mind-blowing for me Um, and I also had the chance to go to New York a few times and just being in the environment the Lower East Side where Anna Golan lived um, really made that world come to life. One thing that I discovered, which was interesting when I went to the archives, the Yiddish archives in New York City, um, was that her son, Anna Margolin's son, did attempt to contact her uh, in the 1930s when he was a young man. Yeah, he sent her a telegram from Italy asking (laughs) her for money. Of course, of course. I guess that's what you do, um, as one does. (laughs) And to my knowledge she never responded. And it's so funny because when I was talking to Shirley Kumov, um, Anna Margolin's translator about my research, she was like, did you see the telegram? I'm like, yes, I saw the telegram. (laughs) Holy shit. Um, Because imagine that, I mean, imagine like your long lost child who, I mean, she abandoned, right? When he was less than a year old, reaches out to her you know, and tries to make a connection to my knowledge and to Shirley's knowledge, she never responded to it. And so that changed the book in a way. It didn't only change my understanding of Anna Margolin as a writer who eventually embraced a very reclusive, um, solitary lifestyle, but as a woman who was intensely private and compartmentalized her life in very strategic ways, I think, as a survival mechanism. Um, And that in turn influenced, I think, the poetics of the book itself, because I made the decision to use various constraints as a means of generating the work. 
Um, and one of the constraints that I ended up using was the sonnet form um, right. and creating a crown of sonnets, which is 15 interlinked sonnets, which ultimately end with uh, one consisting of each of the first lines right. of the previous 14. I love that idea. Forms. I haven't heard of the crown of sonnets before. That's really you neat. Gotta you got to try it. If you ever, or if you, it would be very masochistic on your part, Amanda, if oh. you ever attempted it. I'm not recommending it, but if you ever really <laughs> wanted to give yourself a hard time and cause yourself a semi-nervous breakdown, <laughs> I wouldn't suggest it. Um, but as a poetic exercise and experiment, I don't think there's any better way to, to indulge or to, to really delve into a theme or a narrative topic for me in this case. I had um, at one point, um, I always, I mean, I, I serve the work, right? Whatever the work wants me to do, that's what I do. Like, I'll do whatever, yeah. it doesn't matter. I don't have any pre, I used to have very sort of set ideas about what poems were and what the, what I didn't want to do. And all, but now it's just, I go with whatever, whatever the work tells me to do. So at one point, this is a long time ago now, I had a, I was working on a manuscript called All the Catherines. And for some reason, I was called upon to write sonnets and I it I had to do a lot of research. It took me three months to write three sonnets, just sonnets. Never mind a crown. Yeah. I was just writing three and forget it. It was it was so hard. And I wasn't really trying to do the um mm -hmm. I wasn't trying to do the rhyme scheme or anything like that, but I was still trying mm -hmm. to do things like the turn and and I tried the different types, the Shakespearean and the Petrarchan and stuff. I, I'm yeah. sorry, I just it just when and sometimes with me, if I'm constrained like that, it's a good way of, of getting me over a writer's block because I, I just rebel. Like I can't. Yeah, exactly. But three months and, and those sonnets have not been published anywhere. So and that manuscript has not yeah. been published. So all the Catherines are still waiting. But yeah, so I, but I, I am very intrigued by that. I also like series and long poems. So I like yeah. the idea of that very much. Did Shirley get the chance to to read the or see the book? Or? Yes. She did, and she loved it so much. Oh, Amanda, that was one of the greatest thrills for me, period, really? when it came to publishing this book. I swear to God, like, it, to me, that just being able to share this work with Shirley and her response to it made me feel like I'd won this award. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, that to me was one of the most rewarding things I've, I ever possibly could have hoped for. I mean, I, I worked on this book with my incredible editor, Micheline Mailer at Frontenac House, who encouraged me so deeply and so passionately right from the start. Like she really, really believed in this book before it was a book, like before the manuscript was even finished. Like she oh. had this really, really strong feeling about it. And so having that support and having my mother's support throughout the collection as well, and then having Shirley's, I feel like those were like the three women mm. whose opinions mattered to me the most. Like I couldn't get Anna Margolin's approval, right. obviously, obviously. Right? Yeah. Um, for being dead, you know, kind of a, throws a bit of a wrench in those plans. <laughs> but, um, and she didn't have any descendants whom I could contact either, you know, and I did look. Um, but having Shirley Kumov's approval 
and not just approval, but her praise really, really meant the world to me. That's that's great. That would be fantastic too. I, I was thinking too about how, um, you know, um, I mean, one of the things that you've done here is uh, bring to light the the life of a writer who a lot of people probably didn't know existed, right? And I think okay. that's a lot of women. We 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 were faced with a lot of. Um, male centricity you know yeah. on men so I I think that's something also that's important about what you do with this book as well like I, I probably will go yeah. back and read I looked for the Adrian Rich poems I have the big collected but I, I mm-hmm. couldn't find any that were specifically about Anna Margot and there were others so that I haven't mm-hmm. were extracted but I couldn't find them in that and that's the big thing that I have of Adrian Rich's so I'm gonna have to dig them up and send them to you oh that'd be great I would love that because I would love yeah. to read uh I would love to read a, a, some of her Anna Margolin's work as well mm-hmm. so uh, when writing about someone who existed it can be challenging I found it to, to navigate yeah. tension between fidelity to their story while still allowing oneself creative license creative freedom and you handle this quite well in the preface you write I make no claims to speak on behalf of the dead nor do I attempt to cover every facet of Margolin's life such an undertaking would take a lifetime the persona I have enacted in these poems hovers on the periphery of my imagination filtered through my own dreams preoccupations dis pleasures, pleasures, experience. I try my best to give a lyric voice to the most essential enduring aspects of the poet's life and work as I see her and to engage in conversation with those parts of myself that are most closely, most symbolically entwined with her story. That was really great. That's a great, I mean, I love the preface. I love preface. I oh, thank you. Notes and stuff like that anyway. Like mm-hmm. I love notes. I love any kind of thing like that. Some people don't like that stuff, but I love yeah. that. Yeah, um, I'm the same way. I love all that kind of stuff. And you know what? Is it crazy? But I don't know. I I read acknowledge- the acknowledgments like I when I like right away when I read a book of poetry. First thing, first yeah. thing I read I the read- notes. I read the acknowledgments. Yeah. I want to know the dedications. I want to know the context. I before I dig right into the poems. Epigraphs. I'll I'll always look at epigraphs, and and if if it's an epigraph that I particularly like, I'll I'll keep I'll keep it for myself as well. So you know all, all those things. So were there points where you were writing or editing the poems, that this um, this tension between uh, fidelity and uh, create creativity uh, caused a concern for you? And if so, how did you handle it when it happened? So this is such a good question, Amanda. And I mean, this was something I wrestled with. Uh, different points during the writing of the book, <laughs> for sure. I mean, maybe it's just my nature to be conflicted and to wrestle with all these kinds of like internal conflicts. Maybe that's just me and my neurotic self talking. I don't know. Um, and maybe as a poet, that's just kind of what it's. What's that? Sorry. I think it's our thing to. to- yeah, 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 it kind of comes with the territory yeah, to yeah. a certain extent, and I feel. As I, as I say this, I'm sort of perpetuating a Jewish stereotype and yet at the same time I'm embracing it and I'm embodying it. And so fuck it. Why not? Right. <laughs> um, so there were certain points where I um, remember being in the archives and pouring over Anna Mergolin's correspondence, um, most of which I couldn't read because it was either in Yiddish or in Russian with the odd English letter thrown in there. And there were points during the process when I really asked myself, is what I'm doing honorable? Yeah. Am I being invasive? Is this appropriative in a way? And I really had to make peace with that 
nagging doubt by transforming the story and infusing it as much as possible with supernatural and um, imaginative elements and by creating a kind of metaphorical distance between Anna Mergolin, the historic figure, and Anna Mergolin, the figure and character of my imagination. Um, And, you know, it's funny, I was recently looking at some of the back issues of journals that I've had, you know, work published in over the years. I'm decluttering (laughs) this like crazy office of mine and just going through my stuff, right? And the first poem, the very, very first poem I ever published when I was 21 years old was a personum poem written in the voice of Persephone. Okay, so you were there already with that. I was there, you know, but I, yeah, I'd forgotten about that. It was a two-part prose poem. Actually, the first part was a prose poem with a lot of the um, spacing that I had in two of the sections of Nautilus and Bone, only instead of using, um, you know, like white space, I used the slashed kind of breakup text. Um, But in this particular poem that I published way back in 1997. Um, The first part was a prose poem with lots of white space um, in which I spoke about Persephone's choice to embrace the dark sensual world of Hades. She was like an agent in her own, I don't know, descent, if you will. And then the second part I admit, like, I was really kind of stealing D.H. Lawrence and Sharon (laughs) Olds because that's what you do when you start out, right? You steal lines and you steal the voice from, you know, your favorites and your idols. And that was much more um, spare and trying to write in a lyrical way. Um, And that was also kind of about the sensual relationship between um, Hades and Persephone. And... And so I feel like this has kind of been a dominant theme in my work for a very long time, right? It's sort of like, so how do you write a historical figure? How do you write a mythological figure? How do you write yourself, right? Like, aren't we kind of writing in a persona every time we write, sit down and write a confessional poem to a certain sure. extent? I don't know. What do you think yeah. about that? Well, there's there's the there's the work, and then there's the distance between the work and the writer. And there's I know when I was um, after my health crisis, like I you know I had a near death health crisis in yeah. nine, and when I tried to write poetry about it because I needed to write about it, I had to write about it. like I was right away. It's just like like in like January of 2010, I was trying to write about it. And every time I tried to write a poem, I couldn't do it because I was so close to it. And the fidelity was so important to me that I couldn't change anything because it had to be, I I couldn't make it if it was, if it was, um, you know, I I couldn't use my editor's eye to make it into a poem. Mm -hmm. And, And so what I ended up doing is I ended up doing blog entries called Phoenix and fire firebirds and Phoenix and I did that instead. And then later on, I, I maybe uh, later, like at the end of 2010, I started to write uh, poetry about it. But it, I mean, sometimes I think that distance is what makes, at least for me, able to write about myself. And one of the things for me is I the first um, persona I ever took on was Eleanor of Aquitaine. 
And I brought her into the modern era, like I brought her into contemporary Ottawa. I have a chapbook that came out in 2007. That was, that was my first published work about, and I I have always kind of shied away from writing about my, I've I've written a lot of stuff about myself, but I've shied Uh away from it and I've used various techniques to kind of not do that. And I've used pseudonyms a lot, for example, and all kinds of things to get away from that feeling that I'm writing about myself. Because I, there's this little voice inside of me that says, nobody cares about you. Nobody wants mm-hmm. to hear about you. Stop writing about yourself. But at the same time, it's every time I've chosen to write about these different women, they have had a lot of parallels with me and there have been things that resonated. So so I, I don't know, I, I sometimes I think I need to trick myself to write about myself. Yeah. And very uncomfortable when people when people start saying so this is this is your story this is about you me too well you know it isn't it you know it isn't it isn't right yeah yeah I have the same I have have the same um gosh so many things that you're saying really resonate with me I mean in my first book there are two poems which are written in the first person lyrical I voice yeah but they're totally fictional they are, and I say that in um, in my notes. One of them was inspired by a collection of postcards that I actually found in a yard sale of wow. someone's That's old neat. family vacation um, postcards and photos from the seventies. And so that inspired a whole series of poems. Again, totally fictional. It had no connection to my life whatsoever. And then another began as a collaborative poem in Stuart Ross poetry bootcamp workshop. I love and that. I have one of those with him here in my living room, actually. Oh, really? Oh, <laughs> no, my God. They're so, aren't they the best? I yeah. I, I love yeah. those bootcamp workshops. Um, anyway, and shout out to Stuart Ross for, cool. for doing so many incredible things like that with poetry. Um, so that poem in my first collection, Closer to Where We Began, began as a collaborative Um, poem with another person in the workshop and then we were given the challenge of going off and writing our own response or our own version of that poem without the other person and Mm. it was interesting because I mean you know I didn't get tons of reviews for that book but one of them referenced um, you know oh yes so the author talks about this and that experience in her life and I've never had either of those experiences which I kind of found amusing and not not that surprising I guess in some ways, it was a compliment, right? I was that convincing <laughs> that I made it sound like it was something that really happened. But I mean, I don't know, Amanda, like this label of confessional seems to be the product of like a lot of misogynistic, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, pathologizing of well, women right? talking about their lives and women when, when men talk their about lives their, as mater- yeah. material. That's it. When men write about their lives, that's you don't hear that. And, no, and it's th- called poetry. Yeah, or even like autobiographies, like the difference between often uh, what the way a, a woman's autobiography and a man's autobiography is sort of, you know, um, reported on or reviewed. It's like I read a whole article on it actually when I was doing, you know, starting to work on reading your work, Nautilus and Bone. And it came up this idea of, of the different ways in which uh, men and women's writing is treated, especially when they're writing about themselves. And that term confessional is used and it has been used. And I admit in my early days of, of, of getting my work published, I even have used that word in a pejorative 
sense too, because there's mm-hmm. as if there's something shameful about writing about yourself. Why it is it, for sure? It must be it must be a, a patriarchal sort of uh, stigma that's caused that sort of like oh and and you know what I also hate when people say oh uh, you know don't overshare you know like that's sort right, of right right exactly oh, you know that, like who decides yeah. right like who decides like yeah. what's public with private and like whose interest does it serve to keep certain things private and to share other things and like what what domain is considered I mean that's one thing that I really admire about you Amanda is the way that you push those boundaries and to me that is that's deeply inspiring thank you um it is I mean I really do because I feel like that is very empowering and and I feel like it's it really um, sets the bar high, right? I mean, so I just wanted to say that. So I oh, think that's, that's nice. very cool. I mean, I have such a mixed relationship with the idea of being a confessional poet. On the one hand, like, I do want to draw on my life. I can't kind of help but draw on my own life experience or a lot of the subject matter of my poems. Yeah. But I'm also, I also resist the idea of a poem being about something. Yeah, well, that's it, right? That, every time we have to answer that question... It's tricky, right? I, I sort of, I came to terms with the idea of, of uh, writing about myself, um, I guess over my health crisis is partly, eventually came to terms with, because I, I talked to a lot of um, people who had had near-death health crises or who had lost someone. And okay. when they, some, and in, in hearing my work or reading my work, they, it, it helped, it, you know, they told me that it helped them because, um, you know, they had gone through these experiences. And, and sometimes when you go through a specific experience, only people who've gone through something like that, like, I don't know, like sometimes it, it, it resonates for them. So now I say I write um, to, uh, so that um, others will not feel alone. That's, and, and that's taken away. Mm. By, I don't have any worries about writing. As long as it's about myself, it took me years to be able to write about my childhood, for instance, and I didn't, yeah. I think I actually, I don't think I started to publish stuff to do with that because I experienced some childhood uh, trauma and, and stuff like that until my mother died in, in, in 2017. I'm not sure. I may have, but very little. And, and she wasn't reading a lot of it. She wasn't online mm-hmm. reading and stuff like that. So, but yeah. I think maybe like, I still have a couple of siblings that are alive. My two siblings are alive, but again, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going to be reading my work so much, but I have been v- kind of careful about dealing with my my family stuff mm-hmm. uh, so you know that but I get the same time I want to so as long as I maintain that idea of I write so that others don't feel like they're the only one because I, I often I uh-huh. wake up every I, I this is a regular thing for me I wake up and say am I the only one who feels like a complete misfit you know like it was it doesn't fit in with all this yeah like white picket fence monogamy, owning yeah. houses, like, I mean, I, I, I respect anyone who, who loves that stuff, but I mean, it's not for me, and, and I feel like I live in a world where, at least in, in a North American, Ottawa world, maybe, mm-hmm. where those things are so valued, and I don't, I don't have any value for any of those things, you know, so, yeah. But anyway, yeah. that's my little, I always seem to have one long rant in these episodes. That are oh, and bless your heart for having them. What would we do without those rants? I mean, gosh, you're touching on, you're touching on so many things that resonate with me. And in particular, the idea of writing to, so that people don't feel alone and they know they're not the only person who's going through this. And 
I mean, poetry was a safe haven and a refuge for me when I was a teenager going through some really difficult times at home as well. And it became a way of me making sense of a life and a situation that was senseless in so many ways. Um, and my family went through a lot of financial instability. We yeah. were evicted a few times around the same time. My sister had a mental health crisis um, and subsequent hospitalizations. Yeah. So we had a, I had a very, very turbulent adolescence. And it was during that time that I really started reading contemporary poetry, wow. um, modernist poetry as well, like T.S. Eliot um, and Sir Pound and Auden. Um, but that's also when I discovered Margaret Atwood and Sylvia Plath, right? right. And um, contemporary and modern like women writers and being able to read their work and Leonard Cohen, of course, also a really big early influence really made me feel less alone and less afraid and right. gave me courage. And so that was one of the reasons I always wanted to publish my own book of poems so that I could give something back or pay it forward. And that might sound really cheesy and cliche, but that's just how I've always felt about it. It's, it's, it's great. And, you know, I wish I, when I was when I was a teen, I didn't know any contemporary poetry at all. All I knew really was my father, when I was a kid, recited like Shakespeare and Edward Lear. So I knew Victorian morality poems and mm. I, I knew Shakespeare. And it really wasn't until I was in my 30s when I was uh, sort of um, going through a bad time in my life and I started to search for poetry as solace on the internet that I found Gwendolyn McEwen, who is really, like, I love her work so much. Mm -hmm, me my, too. Yeah, my favorite poem of all time is The Red Bird You Wait For. I love that poem so much. Oh, and uh, Sylvia Plath and Lorna Crozier and uh, Mary Oliver and all of those all of those women. And to me, I had at that point in my 30s, I didn't even know I was writing poetry because I had written all my life. Yeah. I had written all my life. Like, I mean, from the time I could hold, uh, you know, a pencil in my hand, I was always, wow. but I didn't know it was, I was writing poetry. Oh, that's amazing. All I heard was, I, and I studied like university, I studied French literature, but again, you know, in, in all my university uh, French program, both uh, undergrad and master's, mm -hmm. um, we never studied any women. I don't remember any women. <laughs> I'm serious. Yeah, I believe it. I mean, geez, when I was in high school, I mean, I I was really lucky actually because I was in, a, in an English program that um, was really exceptional and where we studied so many great authors, but yeah, 90% of them were male. Um, and then when I went to McGill for um, my first and second year, I didn't end up finishing that degree, but um, I was in an English program for those first couple of years. Yeah. And that's where I started reading more Canadian poets. Yeah. Um, and Phyllis Webb was one of them who like knocked my socks off. <laughs> and PK Page and Margaret Avison. Um, I'm trying to remember who else. One of the uh, Victorian poets, Isabella Valency Crawford, another poet who really impressed me in those days, gave me like such an incredible range of voices that I just had never known existed. Yeah. And that's that's the problem, I think, with sticking to the white male canon. It's when people, you know, talk about diversity and inclusion, 
I mean, a lot of people dismiss it, right, as you're being politically correct or you're just, you know, investing in some kind of tokenism. But I think... assholes. (laughs) Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Fuck those people. Um, It's true. It's true. Um, I was just... Yeah. But I think it goes so much deeper than that, right? In terms of reading from outside your own experience. Yeah. And perspective taking and shifting your perspective, which is... deep and transformational process right like that's not something that you just undertake lightly and it's not something that happens overnight it can take years but I think that all starts with reading and reading outside of the traditional white male European canon not that we shouldn't read those writers not that we shouldn't you know write about them either right but well, Why do we need to limit space. ourselves to that? I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm still, I read a lot of contemporary, I read, I read primarily contemporary writers today, and I still read a lot of, of men, but I don't let that, t- the ma- my main space is not taken up by uh, reading men. When I was researching the, the, um, the work for uh, Judith Women Making Visual Poetry, mm-hmm. I was so surprised by how many women artists and visual poets that I had never heard of that were doing, had done amazing work and amazing cur- curation. And I was like, now I'm really inspired by their work and I'm, I'm working on even visual poems that respond to some of that work. But the fact is, is if a lot of us, if we don't know about that work, we can't respond to it. It's like, a, it's like a continuum. It's a conversation. And it I, is, yeah. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel, I mean, I may have felt resonance with the language of Shakespeare or whatever, but I mean, obviously, because it's, it's, you know, it's pretty thrilling, but uh, in places, but um, I mean, I didn't really feel like it represented anything to me other than, you know, the big life stuff. But I mean, when when I start to read people like, um, like, well, especially Lorna Crozier has this poem about uh, carrots fucking. Carrots are fucking the earth. Yeah, I mean, that was it for me. (laughs) In my 30s and very randy, it was a perfect time for me to be reading that. I was like, yeah, everything feels sex to me at this moment or and it always does for that matter you know we, we we have a lot of other questions but i think what i'd like yeah. to do now is to ask you if you wouldn't mind um reading a poem and if you if you if you're comfortable we can we can talk about the poem afterwards and, and sure uh, do you have any particular requests amanda anything well, that so you many- would like to hear I have so many dog ears and like you know, the whole book is dog eared for me as it is. Right. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid I'm a dog ear and I have a, I have a lot. I really, um, the, um, there's, well, you know, you can read anything. There's um, on page 20, you have 2000 rubles, which I really like yeah. that a lot. And I have stars and, and, you know, things. So yeah. So yeah, that's, that's a good one. It's, it's also just one poem rather than some of them are series. So yeah, sure. Yeah. I'll re- I'd be happy to read that one. We can. Sure. Okay, here we go. 2,000 rubles. And it starts with an epigraph. God save us from having one child, one eye, and one shirt. Yiddish proverb. Only a child. The only child my mother could bear. Only I floundered in her zealous grasp. No light permitted to enter the citadel she built around us. Stacking stones as if walls could keep me from growing away and outside her meager domain. If only. As a girl, I was alone. The lone tulip leaning in a flute of green-lipped water on the wide-grained table. My girlness a shame. 
living proof of her womb's moot undoings, swollen gloom, all she'd lost, not only the sons who tried and failed to bloom. Only my mother knew the frozen ache, the blackberry clots, the stillborn's frozen blue, winter's beak pecking translucent skin, slosh of ice blood raging for spring. How in a snow globe's vertigo, she'd flailed, dwelled in the slit of a broken needle's mocking eye. My father had landed her for a dowry of 2,000 rubles, an ungodly sum, the only offer my grandfather needed. Everyone knows a simple girl whose hips smack of silk must be married off post-haste, lest the branch she, she swings from droops until it nearly kisses the earth, tensed to the point of breaking. Indeed, what man can stomach a litter of rotting pears, all that split, mealy skin, oozing pulp, squandered juice in a lonely orchard's shade. Thank you. That was fantastic. I mean, one thing I noticed, because... When I when I listen to you read the poem, is I notice more of the sound play that I I, I often read people's work mm-hmm. aloud when I'm and I but I don't remember reading this aloud this time. But uh, yeah, you've got some great like all the proof and the gloom and the blue. I mean, there's that's really a lovely uh, thing. Do you read your work mm-hmm. out loud when you're when you're revising or writing? Oh, every every single time. Yeah. I, I I cannot put anything to print without reading it out loud. Absolutely. Yes, yeah, yeah. here I have to. I even read, you know, I even read the questions out loud that I'm preparing. Yeah, dude, that's I, great. <laughs> I read everything out loud. I, I, and sometimes when I'm reading someone's work, I have to stop and start from the beginning and read the whole thing aloud, like just to, to. Mm-hmm. It's like I can't really get it unless I read it aloud. So yeah, I feel I, like I feel like I need to feel the poem in my mouth yeah. and feel like what does that language want to do? You know, um. I watch, I have to admit, I have this guilty pleasure. No, fuck that. I just have like a, a TV show that I love, Project Runway. Oh, it's, that's one of my favorite. Are you watching? You really? Are you watching Making the Cut now? Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> yes, we're only, uh, we're, we're limiting ourselves to one because we watch in the morning, like before Charles goes to work. So we yeah. have breakfast. So we're limiting it to like one. So we're only on season, we're on season two, episode, I think we just finished episode three. So we're just, oh my God, it's so funny. That's you say crazy. That. Okay, so so I'm definitely speaking to the right person about this. So how does Project Runway tie in with Yiddish language poetry? Um, so one thing that I love about Tim Gunn, the host of Project Runway and making it work, yes. is when he takes designers to the fashion, to the fabric store mood, and yes. he's like, let the fabric speak to you. You know, yes. what does the fabric tell you that it wants to do, right? Does it want to be, uh, you know, a blazer? Does it want to be in jumpsuit? You have to listen to your fabric. Or he says it in a very different way. That's like a terrible Tim Gunn impression. But I feel that way about every single poem. You have yeah. to let the fabric, the language itself, tell you and speak to you what it wants you to do exactly well it's what i was saying too before about about i serve the work right i that's sort yeah. of how i feel exactly now now the thing 
the you know how I discovered Project Runway through Ron, the, no. the American poet Ron Silliman, who who actually wrote uh, about it really on blog, and no. I had never watched it, and that's how I learned. And and I think there's I can't remember what he said about, it, but I think there's so many parallels because they get into creativity so much, and exactly. There's so many parallels about uh, creativity and well, I mean, fashion is creativity anyway, but I'm not a fashion person. Like I don't know anything about, yeah. I, I, and, and, you know, so, but uh, no, I'm, I, and I'm, I'm enjoying making the cut so far. That is so funny. That's yeah. hilarious. I mean, but to get back, to, to get back to the poem, I mean, with the sound yeah. in it, yeah. I mean, I also started working more with sound um, in the last three or four years and really yeah consciously thinking about the line as a unit of meaning and as a unit of sound. So not just like the Charles Olson breath line, but in terms of scoring, in terms of the vowels providing like a kind of internal structure for the poem and that could branch out from. Yeah, no, I mean, that's it for me. Well, of course, I have my synesthesia, so I have colors associated with things, too. So that always adds another. Mm-hmm. another I'm, I'm also looking at, I should say, too, in, in the in the back, you've got these great notes. And for 2000 rubles, the yeah. note you've got is, and again, I, I, I sort of, sometimes when I'm reading for the first time through a book, I don't go to the notes, and then I'll go again for this, mm-hmm. for the podcast, I'll go again, and then I'll go through all the notes at that point. But uh, yeah. so the note for, which is on page 102, 2000 rubles, 2000 Russian rubles, roughly $35 Canadian today's currency, was a sizable sum of money at the time of Menachem and Devorah. Uh, Lebensbaum's engagement and considered a high price for a dowry. And this is from a, a book uh, from Ice, Iceland, mm-hmm. 2013. The Yiddish proverb in the epigraph is from Words Like Arrows, a collection of Yiddish folk songs compiled by Shirley Kumov, illustrated by Frank Newford. So that, that's great. That, that's that's really great that you explain that. So $35, like, it, it, yeah. I mean, it was a sizable sum back then. So that's important to know, and that helps too. Another thing that really struck me about this poem is all the fruit imagery. Like, wow, that was mm. great. Now, how do you, I mean, this is a question that I ask myself, I ask other people, how do you come up with imagery? Like, do you, when you're working on, what is, I mean, I think it's probably mm-hmm. part just happens organically. And then the other thing is you then start to, I don't know, like, how do you do that? Well, part of it is intuitive, as you, as you said, yeah. and then part of it is actually very calculated and deliberate in terms of um, surprise and randomness. Um, one of the practices that I gained um, from George Elliott Clark at um, the Sage Hill Spring Poetry Colloquium in 2019, which is actually a variation on something I've been doing for years, is making lists of words that yeah. I really love. Yeah. Um, and making lists of nouns in particular um, without any rhyme or reason to them, you know, like without any necessary like system or whatsoever um and then just kind of like plucking those words and trying to give my cognitive mind something to do as why win yeah. likes to say and just you know <laughs> finding ways to insert them into a poem or um, building a poem around them and i i mean that's a practice that i really especially admire in like surrealist poetry as well as using collage as a as yeah. a generative technique using bits of found language and dialogue, folk um, sayings, proverbs, um, any bit of overheard um, or um, I want to say like sourced or outsourced um, language and and seeing how they can um, fit together into a poem 
So for Jewess, the opening poem in the collection, for example, it starts off, I'm just going to, if, if you maybe will permit me just to read like a few lines. Yeah, absolutely. From, um, the first poem. Don't call me Jewess. Call me, fel- call me hellfire and fish hooks. The moon as it violets the earth in mollusk silver shadow, papered with yellowed envelopes and wheat. Call me pale skins stretched into backlit sails. Call me opium, milk rose, a comet saliva trail spilling the blue globe. Like a lot of that language came to me intuitively and a lot of it came as a result of having these words in my mind and on paper ahead of time and really not knowing how they were going to come together until I sat down and started writing the poem itself. A lot of, too, I find, I don't know if I could, I could, I feel like I could almost say all over most of, but I feel like a very strong sense of the visual in your work. And I feel like an artist could take your poems and make, make paintings out of them or collage mm-hmm. or whatever, but there's just, it's just so beautiful. The other thing I want to say about 2000 rubles as well is a reflection of the book as a whole, um, this idea of being um, female. Yeah. For instance, this being a shameful thing mm-hmm. and something and, and the rebellion of Anna Margolin against this idea was very prevalent in the book. I didn't have a question about it. That's why I thought well, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Because I have all these I, all these things I write about, the notes I write about things in, in, in uh, books, but I never know how to frame them into questions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was an important part of this book is a very feminist book too I would say it's very much about rebelling against the patriarchy as well mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was great as well and I love I mean one thing you did and you meant in in, in Jewish the, the thing I noticed there and in many of your other poems you often you often are verbing nouns right so you this is I do that a bit yeah, yeah that's is right it, is it something that you did you realize you were doing it or is, is it was it sort of an accidental thing or do you think it's uh in some cases, in, in, in some cases it was, in other cases, it was a need for me to play with diction and, and syntax that would make it interesting and surprising for me as a writer, as well as the reader. I mean, I'm also an English language teacher. As you know, I, I teach right. English as a second language. I've been doing that for many years now. And so, I mean, teaching my students different parts of speech, what is a verb, what is a noun, what is an adjective, what is a preposition, all those kinds of things. That grammar is just a part of my way of thinking. Like it or not, I'm not saying that this is necessarily a good thing, (laughs) but um, having the different parts of speech and sentence structures of complex, simple, compound, and so on, as an ESL instructor, that's just kind of what goes on in my in my brain. Yeah, yeah, that, that makes sense to me. Yeah, so is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, any readings or events coming up? Um, I have a reading coming up in September um, as part of a Calgary-based reading series um, called The Single Onion. And I don't have the date offhand. I think it's September 16th. I'll be reading with the other authors from the 2020 Frontenac House Quartet. Um, So that's going to be exciting. Um, In the fall, there's something really cool that I'm going to be part of. It's um, a concert that's being commissioned and coordinated by George Elliott Clark, in which 
various poems by um, women poets are, have been turned into songs and set wow. to music. So we had a virtual concert in May, which was absolutely phenomenal. And I worked with a brilliant young composer named Emily Hamstra, who turned Jewess into a beautiful piece for um, mezzo-soprano and piano and so that's going to be you know knock on wood assuming and hoping we'll be back to in-person events by October or actually this is going to be early November um, this will all be performed live wow. so I am incredibly excited about that that sounds amazing and with Anna Yin and Andrea Thompson and Aisha Chatterjee Yes. Oh, it should be incredible. That sounds beautiful. It sounds it sounds like something I, I, I wish I could attend, but <laughs> lovely. Yeah. You never know. You yeah. never know. Is there anything else you'd like to uh, talk talk about before I do my note of prayer? <laughs> um, just uh, the um, use of Yiddish in Yes. The book. I just yeah. wanted to quickly touch on that because that was something for me that was new territory. You know, I didn't grow up speaking Yiddish, yeah. even though it was my father's mother tongue. Um, I learned Hebrew as a child. My parents sent me to a Hebrew day school, which is, you know, something that a lot of Jewish kids attend. So it's like an, an elementary school, but you learn like two or three hours of Hebrew a day or something like that, which is not something that I really wanted to pursue further than um, elementary school because I just put religion and or, well, organized religion anyway, at like kind of like an arm's length. That just wasn't something that interested me right. um, for, for a long time, although the culture and history kind of did. Um, and so, yeah, there is some Yiddish sprinkled in the book um, in different ways and in different forms, like in um, terms of translated um, proverbs and sayings and just a sprinkling of the language itself. And I really wrestled with whether or not to put those words into the text or not, right. and whether or not the average reader meaning and when I say the average reader, that shows kind of like an internalized um, anti-Semitism that I might have in my brain, right? Mm -hmm. Like average meaning of the dominant majority. Right. You know what it, do you know what I mean? Like that the, just reveals so much. The, the wasp reader. Right. right there you go. Yeah. Um, so I was, I wanted to be inclusive, but at the same time, I wanted to be very particular and very peculiar and very true as much as I could to the original voice of Anna Margolin. And so I felt like Yiddish had to take, um, if not a central role in the book, then at least a significant and a major one. Um, because for me, it was part of creating this yeah. collage or this textured canvas that I ultimately see the book as in a lot of ways. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. I was glad that it was there. You had, you had, I mean, I, I knew uh, most of the, um, Mo there were a few that I didn't know, and you had notes in mm -hmm. the back. But um, uh, Vikram Seth, when he, uh, with uh, the, his wonderful book, A Suitable Boy, he spoke at one point about d his decision. He included uh, uh, words from, you know, uh, in the book that were, um, you know, 
uh, words from um, the languages in, of the book, the you know South Asian. And uh, he said that he chose not to include, include a glossary because he really wanted people to get it from the context. And he, mm -hmm. but he did include many words like those Hindi words and different words. So that was, um, um, that's a brick of a book, <laughs> but it's a brick. I'm sure. Yeah, that sounds really interesting too. Yeah. So it's, a, I, I liked that you included it to me. It, I mean, it also represent, it represented the, her, it represented her culture, it also represented, and, and again, it, it's part of that erasure that, you know, that thought that you had, like, maybe you shouldn't do that, you know, what about the so-called average reader? I mean, that, those are all the kinds of things that um, kind of make um, it important to include that, right? So that was a good Exactly. Choice. It's more, it's more reason than ever, I think, to, to do that. Like I never really wanted to be pigeonholed as just Lisa Richter, a Jewish poet. Like that is one facet of my identity that was very influential and very formative, but it is no way um, an all-encompassing identity. Obviously there are so many different parts of me as a poet and in turn, I think parts of Anna Margolin. So that's something I wanted to bring out as much as I could in the book. Yeah, that, that, that makes sense. And you did such a great job. This is a good time for me to now read my little note of praise that I have for this book. Okay. Knowles and Bone follows Lisa Richter's mesmerizing collection, Closer to Where We Began, which I love. I love that one too. It is a daring work about a woman who rebels against her time with many lovers and a fighting spirit to take on injustice. While reading the book, I felt as if I had time traveled to New York City in the 1900s because the poems were so vivid and alive. I've never taken a drug except prescription, but Lisa's poetry makes me think I know what a good magic mushroom trip feels like, all the colors at the velocity of winged creatures striving for the light but maybe faster. The book sheds light on a rebellious, larger-than-life woman, a poet who deserves to be remembered and is beautifully rendered here by Lisa Richter through imagination, affinity, skill, and heart. So that's my uh, that's my uh, note of praise for. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Oh, I'm so moved and honored by that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, and uh, so thanks for being on. Thanks to Lisa for being on the Small Machine Talks. Thanks to all of you for listening and sharing this episode. Stay tuned for more episodes in this now sixth season, featuring screenwriter Jennifer Mulligan, uh, Conchetta Principe, uh, Barry Tullett, and visual poet and editor Christine Snodgrass. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Small Machine Talks. The Small Machine Talks.